Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So today we have David and I'm reading his bio and and I'm looking at like his story and he's definitely an individual that's really big on impact and he has a couple like twists and turns that are kind of like unexpected, but I guess as we get to know him a little better, he'll probably elude us a little bit to like, how did he end up spending time with Buddhists, right? So we definitely want to get into that a little bit. So David, the floor is yours. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about you and what are we talking about today? All right. David Landini, CEO and co-founder of Impodio, Salesforce consulting for home services firms. Um, background from that one, I grew up in the tiny town of New York where I traveled, or tiny town of Dansville in New York, where I love traveling because everyone was always like, New York City? And I'm like, no, New York for the cows, not with the skyscrapers. Um, Spent some time in Buffalo, New York before, as you alluded to, hearkening out and making an escape to Boulder, Colorado to live in a Buddhist community living center for a while. And then as we started the company, made it through COVID and have, was living in an RV in Austin, Texas until recently where it got really hot and currently sitting in Lima, Peru. Uh, but just excited to really talk through the journey, what I've experienced, what I've found about business, what I've found about life and how I think Buddhism helps you with both. So, I mean, obviously you're a big person on impact and then I'm, I guess that that's kind of what led you into like the whole Buddhist, Buddhist lifestyle. So like, just, just talk about that. I mean, we brought it up so many different times already. Like, why did you go that route of all the routes you could have went? That's always an interesting question because that answer has changed in retrospective six or seven different times. Because I think most people find their way into meditation in almost like a tricky baby switch. They think they're doing it for performance. They think they're doing it for creativity. They're just like, if you talk to somebody on a base level who's doing headspace, they're like, oh, I just... I get more done, I'm more relaxed, I'm more productive. Um, And I think that's part of where I originally came into Buddhism, where I was actually hosting couch surfers. And there was somebody on their way to a Buddhist retreat center in Vermont. And I was like, I need to go see this, I need to visit. So I spent a week up there in 2016. And at the end of that week, I think I felt calm for the first time in my entire life. And it's one of those moments of you don't realize how stressed and anxious you are in day-to-day life until you actually experience calm, because if you don't have the contrast. And I spent a year just trying to get back to that in day-to-day life and couldn't. So when I went back to visit, they told me about the Buddhist community living center where I could work and continue practice out in Boulder, Colorado. And I just said, yeah, let's go. And... I will admit, most people, when they're there, the very first thing they do is it's almost like they try to win Buddhist meditation. Like, I'm going to get better at this. I'm going to get thoughts out of my head faster. I'm going to do this. And lots of these pieces. Um, but at its core, meditation is about letting go of all of that. 
so that you can see the world exactly as it is with no pretenses and no pretensions and nothing that keeps you going. So it's full of contradictions because a huge piece of what it is is the ability to see most things as not mattering, letting go of the story in your head of who you are, who others are, and what is there, that are all really rules of thumb that get in the way of you just being able to live your life. And the more that I've digested that you're there, it's been huge because you realize per Ryan Holiday's book, which is around stoicism, that ego is the enemy. That thing in your head that's trying to tell you, oh, I need to be better at this. If I reach this goal, if I reach that, is only getting in the way of your opportunity to just sit back, relax, be a human, and choose to make a difference in the world without your own story about yourself getting in the way. Hmm. I think that, that kind of leads me to why, why I've deemed you to be like the impact boss, right? Because I mean, on one side, you're, you're talking about like philosophies and you're talking about a way of living and a way of life. But on the other hand, like you're ingrained deep into technology, into SaaS platforms. So it's like, it's it's, it's, a, it's two separate hemispheres. So let, let's talk about your platform. Like what's the name of your platform? What does the platform do? Who does that platform integrate with? So we, there isn't necessarily a name for a platform because Salesforce is a tool that can be configured to really meet any needs. And it's got a combination of different products and App Exchange products that it's an app store. And what we've done is coalesce together both specific knowledge and how we think it fits to match for home services firms. So like landscaping, pool service, HVAC, plumbing, pest control, uh, to allow them to better run their business. And that's really the full scope of bringing in new leads, handling them appropriately, job costing, sending them over to production, allowing you to optimize, sending thousands of people out into the field and doing it in the most efficient manner and getting paid and making sure that you're supported that whole business process. But when you're talking about impact, way back when, uh, technology to me is just a capability to leverage any specific item you can do and give it to more people. A formula that I was once told was the amount you can be paid, but you can also say that the amount of impact you can have is how many people can you help? How quickly can you help them? How large of a problem can you solve for them? And then what I call the inequality factor, which is how much can those people afford to pay you for that help? So if you help five people buy a $50,000 house, you're broke. But if you help five people buy a $5 million house, you that's all you needed to do for the year. That's the inequality factor. But what technology does is it leverages that equation to both allow you to help more people and to allow you to help them faster. So when you tweak those two things together, that's a lot of what we have staged a lot of our company focus on is really there's two different strategies that you can take a look at within my industry that we have chosen in between back and forth. You can either build something that's more repeatable so that you can help more clients, or you can build something that can help larger companies. And the way that you can look at impact where you might look and be like, why is this Buddhist working in technology? Uh, because most people, and actually there's a good story of that where people were like, oh, don't just go to the retreat center. Mm -hmm. 
you need to learn this in your day-to-day -day life because it doesn't help if you go spend three days meditating and you walk out and you're like, oh crap, 500 emails and it's gone. You need to be able to practice in day-to-day -day life. So most people spend most of their time awake at work and realistically what I like to be able to view ourselves doing in technology is using technology to do two things to free them up from doing lower level activities so that they can spend more time on things that are really worthy of a human. Paperwork at this day and age is not something that a human should be doing. And if it can be automated, it should be automated so that people can spend more time doing things like this, face-to-face, -face, connecting with people, designing solutions, being creative. So if I take away the tasks that are necessary, then we can do that. And then the second piece of it is a well-done system allows you to create flow in your workday. And, oh God, I've never been able to pronounce this man correctly, but Mihaly around flow is that real concept of people are at their happiest when they can be so engrossed in work that time or so engrossed in anything they're doing that it feels like play, that the hours go by. And the more that you can really center everything you do around designing that for people, the better of an impact you're going to have, the better of a company you're going to have. And that's what fascinates me. But I see technology as the highest possible capability that I can do that because I can be a consultant for people and try to help them improve their day-to-day -day life. But I help one person. Now, I mean, if I help a CEO of a very large company, I may be able to have that cascade down. But with technology, I can have my team spend three months setting up a system and that might help 100, 1,000, 10,000 people save an hour a day in perpetuity and give them more flow in their day-to-day -day work life. So, I mean, I kind of led you down this road, right? I mean, on, on one hand, we were talking about philosophy and then as soon as we hit that switch, I, I hear the development I, and I hear the technology and I hear the, the, the techno speak come out of you. Right. So like my next question is kind of facetious and it's playful at the same time, but you're, you're, you're kind of like in the middle. Right. So, I mean, obviously you work with developers and developers look at coffee as God, right. They stay on coffee. They stay awake all day, all night long, but you're kind of like the antichrist when it comes to coffee, you look at coffee as being like, like the dirty word. So I want you to like, how, how do you even go into a room with a bunch of developers and start talking about tea? That's funny. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's very true. Um, I like to say, I don't like any substances that keep me from being present in the world. And that's actually even similar of, um, we, within our company, one of the things we do is I don't allow people to work more than 40 hours a week. And a huge piece of that is simply, I don't think you need to be, when we do need to, it's a sign of a society that's really not providing for its citizens. And see, when you're working in technology, especially there's a major trend in technology and in consulting that most of the work is done on the backs of people in their 20s and early 30s, just working incredibly long hours. And I never feel like that's worth it for anybody. So you're just giving up so much of life. And there's a phrase that I heard recently is never look at the people older and richer than you and just be envious because if you're younger and you have more time, you're richer than they can ever be because they can never buy it back. And that's something that's a principle for me is from an impact. 
I coach everybody I work with, everybody I teach, that they really should primarily look where can I provide the highest impact for the people that I believe deserve helping. I choose an industry that's not necessarily sexy of home services, but that requires a tiny bit of backstory that my father's a plumber and I've watched him for 30 years try to solve the problems that I now solve for larger companies. So for me, there's a huge amount of saying these are people that don't get a lot of attention. Like if you look at Forbes or you look at any business magazine, you're going to see a lot of high tech people, but you're not going to see the people that I work with who are out in the field wearing gloves, working 20 days and going back at the end of the day and saying my back hurts. Um, and if I can save them a little bit of driving, get them a little more work done and have them spend less time on paper, then that's a major impact. Um, but when you're talking with these people, not everybody wants to work with us. And we're very clear on that. You have to look for your tribe to answer your question on the coffee of, if somebody looks at me and says, hey, I'm trying to work 70 hours a week, make as much money as possible and try to cash out and try to piece that together and I'm gonna do a ton of coffee and I'm gonna say, that's the entire American culture. There are a thousand places you can go that will allow you to do just that. We look for people that I look at them and say, hey, I can't pay you as much because you're not working as much. But what we can do is provide something where you can really work when you want, however you want, in a range where we're not going to ask you to do things that burn you out. And a huge amount of our focus is around trying to find things that create better flow and work. Because I think the biggest tragedy is the fact, I mean, this is like the tears small violin. But when I look at people at work today, most people are disengaged. And that's at all ends of the spectrum. Whether you're at a job where you're barely making enough to meet your needs, of course you're struggling, but I have just as many friends who are working at the big four who work 70 hours a week, are underpaid to do that, and go drink four $14 cocktails, or probably $20 cocktails at this point in New York City, and drink $20 worth of coffee just to keep themselves going. And I don't think that's a life worth living for any trade-off. Hmm. So, I mean, I mean, that's a very interesting philosophy. So it leads me to, like, if you could define yourself, right, what three to five words would you choose to define you? Oh, hmm. Inquisitive. Um, open-minded. And adventurous. Those three things together, every piece of every personality test for me is I'm on this world and in this life to try to help people as much as I can while resolving any underlying anxieties and issues and problems uh, to really experience life and to do so without any pretensions. And probably the biggest thing Buddhism helped me with was finding the reasons for and letting go of any of those desires that I thought would make me happy in the future. I think it was Naval Ravikant, but it might have been his brother that hit me with the uh, desire as a contract you make with yourself to be unhappy until you receive something. And people have this tendency to believe that if they let go of those desires, then they'll lose their edge. But that's not true. You may slow down, you might not wake up at 4 a.m. and freak out and listen to a ton of songs, but you're going to look and be much clearer about saying, what impact do I really want to have? 
what do I want to do? And what's the fastest way to get there without sacrificing my life? Hmm. So this, you brought up you being as a kid and your dad working as a plumber. So I want to talk about like, like, what kind of kid were you? Because again, you didn't get into the Buddhism until you were like older in life, right? So, like growing up, did you have a vision to dive into that space? Like, were you kind of like, were you the nerdy kid, or were you the athletic kid, or were you a combination of both? Uh, well, definitely both. I'm nerdy and athletic, but I would put it this way. Um, and with full honesty, <laughs> I've talked a lot about this. Uh, my mother and father really struggled both to be with each other and to run a business. And there were huge amounts of battles around my father just trying to figure out how to run a business. If you've ever read the book, The E-Myth or The E-Myth Revisited, that's him. Um, or at least the him up until the point of failing and keeping things down again. So I very much recognize and have had to reconcile uh, that a huge amount of my psyche went into trying to learn about business so that I could better support. And even now, even starting a business to some extent was in my head, almost as if I could resolve the problems of the past, the problems of my childhood of watching my father struggle. So it is kind of that Freudian airing straight towards like helping home services companies, running a business, doing these things. Um, so I think it's always interesting because our past provides context that allows us to create the story that pushes us to where we want to go. And one of the tricks is both appreciating it, but not letting us rule it. So I find myself in the state of really loving what I do, loving what we can do with the company, but I had to let go of some of those things that I can't fix that are in the past, that are the driving forces of like, are we good enough? Is this going to fix? How do we build a better business? Oh my God, is this going to be as hard or as bad as my father's blood? Um, so it was tough, but I really was the one where I was trying really, really hard, uh, as a child to be better, to learn more, to do things in this kind of misguided sense of if I do better, uh, then the family will do better. Or if I get good enough, then they won't have as many problems, which I think a lot of people would resonate with if they think just a little far back. I think that's definitely interesting. I mean, obviously you're talking about like like time, right? So if there was an opportunity, right? And I'm talking about not just in your lifetime, maybe like in your father's lifetime, if you can go back and maybe talk to your dad and whisper something, some some business knowledge that you have now that he may have been missing back then, when would you go back and what would you say to him? I think there was an implicit piece because I don't think it would be business knowledge. I think one of the most misguided things that I did was thinking that the problem with my father was around business. Um, my mother and father, my mother couldn't really take the lack of control of watching him spiral and figure things out. And they ended up really toxic and codependent in that frame of trying to say like, ah, how do I help? How do I do this? And ending up critical and contemptuous and he was just kind of hiding. I'd really go back to both my mother and my father. And if I could go back to the person I am today, and I've done it with them in the past several years, I just wish I had been able to do it then. And how my mother learned to let go of control and to decide for herself her own choices, because I'm sure she felt trapped. Right as I was born, my father quit a factory job to start to learn to be a handyman and go from there. And it was never 
working very well. And for my father, I'd really give him understanding and forgiveness. One of my proudest moments is my father is just about to be out of debt for the first time in 20 years, and he went bankrupt at 26. Um, so he was only out of debt for like seven to 10 years. And I tried teaching him financial skills. I tried improving the business. I tried to do all of those things, but that wasn't a problem. The problem was he felt like he was failing. His wife was struggling to do with that and was putting more and more pressure on him and then being critical and then getting in fights. And he just didn't know a way out of it. And he started to believe this is always the way it's going to be. And layers upon layers of stories confirmed for him, like, there's no way out of this. There's nothing I can do. Um, I'm never going to be good enough. And it took really the only time I broke through was a two-hour conversation in which I just listened. And I think it was the first time three or four years ago that I realized my mother was part of the problem because she just tried to nitpick at his story and say it wasn't true. And I'm like, you need to get out of the room. Um, so I kicked her out and I just listened and it was fascinating and it was understanding my father in an entirely new way because over two hours, all I did was listen to all of the things he had had of like, things keep breaking, I can't do this, it's always so much work, I'm always in so much struggle, all of these pieces, to harken back to, for him, the origin of the story was when I needed braces in like fifth grade. He had just finally gotten out of debt for probably the first time in his life. He had like $4,000 in the bank. My mom was like, can we use it for David's braces? <laughs> and he's like, yes, I can do this, I am successful. And from that point forward, I think right afterwards, a major piece of equipment broke, it went on a credit card, and he's like, I've been going downhill ever since. <laughs> and I was like, I get it, it's tough. And it was only that measure of acceptance that now, I mean, he went from being essentially stable at like $80,000 in debt, running a small business for a long time, uh, to he's probably going to be debt-free by Christmas this year without really changing anything except his mindset. But that mindset change came from accepting himself, letting go of the story, from receiving forgiveness. I wish I had been able to do that sooner. So, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's very, like, intriguing to, to hear you say, like, it changed his mindset. But it seems like you learned from your dad's examples and you've changed your path because of what you've seen him go through. So, I mean, obviously you come from an entrepreneurial background, essentially from your dad. How did that impact the way you're growing your company and how do you deal with your clients and customers today? Um, first and foremost, it got in the way because I learned two things. Growing up with my father created a deep-seated fear that everything was going to go wrong and that it was never going to work out and that the business was going to fail. Um, Growing up with my mother, who was a social worker, meant a certain degree of codependence of, I need to solve everybody's problems, everybody's problems are my fault. Um, and that meant a lot of challenges and a lot of mistakes in growing a business. First and foremost, uh, me and my co-founder had the idea that realistically, if I put it this way, we were new business owners. 
without experience running a business, without necessarily a ton of experience, even running a consulting business before we've been in, working in the industry at the lower levels, but not necessarily having the opportunity to be at the high levels and know the context. And despite that, we had it in our head that we were going to be innovative at everything. We were going to hire people completely from scratch and give them the opportunity to do it from the people who are the least qualified, never had the opportunity. We were going to be able to solve problems for any client and we were going to do it. We had these fantasies uh, that when I look back were largely rooted in kind of this insecurity of who am I to be doing this? That it's only, I can only really prove that I deserve to be doing this, that I deserve to be a business owner, deserve to be successful. I choose the hardest possible path in every possible way. Uh, and if we can't pull that off, who are we even to do that? And that's kind of what I'm talking about of some of the things around Buddhism of that story cost me and my co-founder uh, a lot of pain because it meant some things. It meant we hired people who were not even remotely qualified <laughs> and tried to get them up to speed. Uh, it meant we hired people who really weren't culture fits. But we were like, if they just come into our loving embrace of people, then they'll just, they'll be fine, which was not true. They were really toxic. It meant that we looked at customers who weren't prepared and weren't prepared to do the work or hold up their end of the bargain. And we said, well, we'll just be better. We'll be better able to support them. And we gave people a lot of breaks. And that got in the way in every possible way. Because when we looked at that, we were new, we were inexperienced, we were figuring it out, we were tying those things together, and we made everything harder for ourselves. And <laughs> it's hard enough just to start a business and to do it right and to understand those principles. And I've been studying it for years, just following my father, but somehow we put all of those barriers on top of ourselves. And I think that's something that Buddhism did teach me. Everybody does without realizing it. We like to, a story that a teacher once told me was, if I'm here and I want to get across the room, we as people, when our ego is in the way, we don't allow ourselves to just walk. We create an entire video game in our head. We're like, well, Am I really good enough to take that next step? What's this? Maybe if I can get up early and do this, I'll prove to myself and convince myself I'm good enough to take that step. And then if I don't do it, then I'm just confirming for myself my deep-seated belief that I'm not there. And we create these barriers to keep ourselves within line. And that's really what the meditation and letting go is all about, is to allow ourselves to just do the work, walk across the room. And that's something where I was not exhibiting a lot of these Buddhist tendencies in this first couple of years of being in business because everything was about being afraid that it wasn't going to work. Proving like we had an HR practice before we had employees that we had built out from an enterprise software. We did all of these things to try to be perfect before we allowed ourselves to just be imperfect, try things, and focus on the fundamentals. Like running a business is finding people who need a problem solved, being able to solve that problem and managing the financials and or people needed to do it. And if you make it anything more complicated than that, then you're gonna get in trouble. That's I very much did.
Hmm. I mean, so, so, I mean, with that, I mean, obviously you're juggling like the past and, and now you've learned how to come to fruition to use the past to jumpstart you and scale and move forward based upon those examples. How do you now currently juggle like your work life with your family life? Uh, ironically, it got easier because the best way I can frame it is I care less. But if I use Anthony DeMello, uh, who wrote a book, well, he wrote many books, but the book, The Way to Love, that I've been reading recently, I'm less attached. It's not that I don't care about the success of things. It's the thing that drives us crazy is the attachment, as defined by, I need this to happen. If it doesn't happen, then it's a major problem. I'm thinking about it. I'm afraid. So that even when I have it, I'm afraid it's going to disappear. That's what got in the way all too often with so many different things. And you watch people, you watch people, they're afraid they're going to be successful. They're afraid they're not going to be successful. They're afraid that it's going to go away. They're afraid one review is going to kill them. All of those pieces where now I care about our customers being successful, our employees being successful, us being successful, our partnership with Salesforce. But if it doesn't, I'm okay with it which just allows me to pay attention to just the things that need to be done to be successful. And that really cut down about 60% of the work we did. It made it much easier. It made it that rather than worrying and staying up late three hours into the night, being like, oh man, we have a really big project, an opportunity on the line, what's this? To just be like, what are the 10 things I need to do to be as prepared as possible to do that? Do that, let it go. And that has allowed me to do it. And secondarily, to answer your question of balancing the work life, to steal from Tim Ferriss's four hour work week, where he has this kind of 10 commandments of Tim Ferriss at the end of it, I believe number one is you must find something else to do. Because otherwise, if you create more efficiency for yourself, you're just going to fill it up with more work. And I have found that inherently to be true. And that's part of why I'm sitting in Lima, Peru today, and I fly out from Medellin. On Saturday, I'm on a four-month trip over the summer, just one month at a time in different countries, and with a group of people that have scheduled and planned a lot of things. Because if you at five o'clock, you have no plans, no people to see, no friends to visit, then it's really easy to just keep burning that oil. And the problem with that is I believe that people need to do the work and work as hard as possible. But in, I think it was Marshall Goldsmith's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, mm. is that a fundamental difference is that works until you reach a certain point of success. Past that point, it's actually no longer about you. It's about the impact and the structure that you can provide for others beneath you. So if you're burning the candle at both ends and not actually planning and strategizing, you're hampering yourself from being able to support an organization beneath you or to support a team or support your students because you're entirely so focused on what you're doing rather than on enabling others to be able to meet the goals and meet the needs. And I have to remind myself of that on a regular basis. Even this morning, there was work that I could have done. And I looked at a team member and said, hey, you look like you have some open availability. Let's make sure you can do that and pass that on because then that frees me up to do more strategic work. And those are the decisions every single time that allowed me to really stay within that 40-hour work week in balanced life. 
Very cool. Very cool. So, I mean, with your travel regimen, right? I mean, you're talking about traveling from, from countries one, one month at a time. And I think one of your, one of the things I read about you, you were saying that your favorite location was Slab City. So like, like, like just to talk about that for a minute. I mean, obviously like you, you enjoy traveling. What was it about Slab City? And for people that don't know, like where is Slab City and, and what's, what's so nostalgic about it? Okay. Um, Slab City dubs itself the last free city in America. It is actually <laughs> kind of like, uh, not necessarily homeless because they have home. I don't know how to phrase it, but it's a bunch of people camping out on an old military base where they don't pay rent in the Eastern California, about two and a half hours from San Diego. And it runs the gamut from people with incredibly libertarian flags to people who have just gotten off bumming on a train uh, to people who are slightly unsavory. Mm. Um, but when I was there and given the context of it, and I wrote an article about this, I was literally struggling. I was at a very good job working at a company uh, that I loved, but every piece of me knew that I was copping out of starting a business, that I just needed to do it and I couldn't relax. And I was literally writing in my journal, I need to quit my job, I need to quit my job, I need to quit my job. Uh, but I was afraid of starting the business. Like I said, just as much of needing to start a business to fix the past was the fear that it was going to fail from watching my father. Uh, so right in the midst of that, I took a vacation to San Diego, heard about Slab City, rented a car, and drove out. Um, and I guess what I loved about it is I love any place that puts down the pretensions of the modern world and doesn't take itself so seriously. Um, I can't remember who said this, but I've always loved the phrase, poets do not have a place in society, not because they are not given a place, but because they don't take any place given to them seriously. And that's how you can really frame Buddhism is the appreciation of the wonderful stories and the culture and the things that humans have been able to put together while also being able to recognize that they're all in our head. Uh, so being able to go out to Slab City was just kind of this homeless community of 500 people living, having built tents, campers, old RVs, all of these things set up in this libertarian anarchy of craziness. Uh, but at the same time, there was community. They had a library run by a woman with one leg who beat me in a sword fight. Um, they had like breakfast every morning where a guy who was there and I talked with him and he's actually like a media producer or a, somebody who does soundtracks for films. And he's like, every time I don't have a film to work on, I just come out here and spend a month. <laughs> well, I can see you're probably the person who came up with Mad Max, that's what it looks like. Um, but that's part of why I like exploring different cultures. Because people like, to, what's the phrase? People like to believe they can think themselves into a new way of acting, but you have to act your way into a new way of thinking. That's similar of, it's impossible to see just how toxic I think a lot of American culture is until you go to another country. Like I very much remember sitting down with a Brazilian friend and trying to talk him through challenges about work and all these pieces. And I'm very good at doing that in America because I know their psyche. But there was a moment in which he sat with me and he goes, I don't think you understand. I don't really want to work. I don't like to work. Like I work to live. 
I'm trying to work as little as possible. <laughs> and I like, I don't need my work to be my end all be all. And those are one of those moments where I was like, wow, I thought I was the person really ascribing that belief. And here's this person from Brazil who's a freaking American. <laughs> That's definitely funny. I think one of the things that, that you brought up and, and it kind of goes into like your, I think I, one of your hashtags was no food wasted. So did you get that not wanting to waste food per se from being in Slab City or is that more of like a, a Buddhist tradition that you've adapted over time? I think there is a component for me of just not wasting. Like when you step back and let go of the ego and look outside, you realize, I think it was Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now that reminded me of this, where the tagline for that book is, if you think the world is ending, think again. And he's like, if you watch the news, you're going to think everything's awful. But if you pay attention to the statistics, everything that you want to go up has gone up. Everything that you want to go down has gone down. Like, we had famines up until the 70s and 80s where people just died. And in the millions. And you still have some today, but usually political at this point. Everything has created it to a point where if you truly take a look at the world, the fact that you woke up today and we're talking means 99.999% of things are doing just fine. They're working exactly as they need to. The fact like there is a computer cable that is sending to space that is 30 different countries working together to make sure that we can talk with 30 milliseconds of lag. That is something that is so incredibly impressive. And I that required the participation of literally billions of humans. And I want to make sure that what we're doing is as worthwhile as possible with as little waste. And so when I look at that, it's kind of the, the world is offering so much, don't waste anything. So when you have food waste, even then, it's a struggle for me to be like, ah, angry, this. Because another phrase I love is, the problems of every generation were the solutions of the prior generation. People will look at our food system in America today and be like, oh, the food's horrible and we waste 50% of our food because people used to die due to lack of food. And we had to figure out how to produce enough. So our food system literally produces 100% more than it needs with a level of diversity that if one thing fails, we can still survive. That doesn't mean that now that we have better technology that we don't want to change the fact that we ended up developing things with less nutrition with less variety that are making us unhealthy and making us fat but the prior generation gave us the solution of don't die due to lack of food it's now our generation's necessity to figure out how to do so in a way that is better sustainable better nutrition and better support so every time you look at that it's just be participating in this grand experiment of humanity of building incredible things, but do it in a way that's less selfish, less greedy, and with less waste. So, I mean, on that same note of like food and, and bringing in like the meditation, I would think that these are two core components of your day-to-day, -day, right? So like what, how do they infuse in your morning routines? So I've gone back and forth and I've actually been working with a coach to who has a great premise he frames it up as most of the time when we start doing something and we're scared we have a level 10 motivation and level zero just kind of internal resistance but as we get more and more successful in anything we do 
we reach a point in which it's at an impasse. And I think most people have encountered that at some point in which they're like, I'm going to work harder, I'm going to do this. And then all of a sudden, I'm making enough, I'm doing enough. Why do I really need to do more? Like the original purpose. And at that point, people either stagnate, which is fine, or if they're trying to be a go-getter, they try to take the approach of raising the motivation to outweigh the resistance. They get up at 4 a.m., they have the four-hour routine, they work out, they're doing all of these things, motivational speeches. Uh, or they get really in touch with their why. Why are we doing this? What's going on? How do I support that? And both of those tactics work for a while until you either burn out or you realize, like, I really can't find a why that makes me want to work that hard against that resistance. So instead, the goal is to flip the script, to decrease internal resistance. And internal resistance comes in many forms. It comes in the fear of not being good enough, the belief that things aren't going to work, the belief, faulty beliefs that aren't true about society or about yourself. So I've been doing a lot of delving into that. For example, when I talked about running the business and making all the mistakes, I realized that my mother was always struggling. So I tried to model myself after her because she, to me, was the good one. And she was a social worker who was a codependent who was trying to save everybody. She was working in a town with 50% under the poverty line and saying, how do I solve all of these problems and also solve my father, which was part of the problem thinking she could solve him. But I was taking that into my day-to-day -day life and that's what was causing me the problems. So I've spent the last six months working on letting that go so that I can just work in my day-to-day. -day. And so what I mean by that is now, my morning routine is pretty simple and it's all around priming myself to be in a good spot. I drink water, I do a little bit of meditation, take a shower and while I'm in the shower, all I do is think about gratitude. And then I go do a 15 minute, eight minute workout, eight minutes of stretches, eat breakfast and spend five, 10 minutes planning my day. Your routine doesn't need to be something crazy. Your routine needs to serve two purposes to prepare yourself for the day in such a way that you've done the key things that are important to you so that you're emotionally set. And two, we live in a pretty chaotic world, especially when you reach a certain level of success or capability where a lot of things are ambiguous. So you're providing your brain just a measure of consistency, just so that the end of that 45 minutes, you walk and you're like, I'm ready to face the day. It's the exact opposite of that. Tim Cook scared the crap out of me when I read this, or I think that's the current CEO of Apple, where it's like, what's his morning routine? Wake up at five and immediately respond to the top 400 emails. That's probably why the quality of Mac products has gone down consistently since Steve Jobs died, because he's not focusing on what really matters. You have this kind of sit back to just say, how do I, how do I design a routine that at the end of it, I feel great and good as a person. So if anybody listening is looking at their routine and they're like, trying to work out for 30 minutes and it makes me feel awful, don't do that. Do something that makes you feel good. Your morning routine is just like, literally give yourself five minutes without your phone to sip a cup of coffee because you love coffee and you just appreciate the flavor. Do that. Design your routine to be something that you can do every day that allows you to feel calm, that allows you to feel prepared, and that gives you a measure of consistency to go out and face a pretty chaotic world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I think I mean your answers to these questions are you're, you're, you're so astute, and I think I, I was trying to keep tally in my head. I think you probably, without thinking about it, recommended roughly probably fifteen to sixteen books in this episode so far. So, like, my next question is like book related. Like, with all this information that you have inside of you, right? Are you or have you had an opportunity to write a book as of yet? I have not at the moment. I actually laughed really hard. I have a very good friend um, in an entrepreneur community who helps people write books. And that same coach I was working with at a conference where she was hosting a class, I had to remind myself that that's a shiny object at the moment, where it was the like, creating impact requires an extreme amount of focus. And that's not great for me. Being all of the three uh, descriptions I gave of myself about adventurous, I am shiny object prone all the time. Meditation has helped me, but the book piece is interesting because I know it's not what I'm trying to do right now. Running a business, scaling a business, figuring those things out requires 100% of my attention and the remainder of my time to enjoy myself and being relaxed. That I think when I reach a point of stability, I want to do so, but I'm taking a note from a mentor of mine, Derek Sivers, who I first heard him on the Tim Ferriss podcast, and then I've kind of kept in communication and read his books. He, and I am now 30, I was 25 when I first heard him. He, Tim Ferriss asked this classic question of what advice would you give to a smart young enterprising 30 year old? And he goes, every one of them that is trying to talk to me is always like, I want to run a business, but I want to start a nonprofit and I want to save the world and I want to travel the world and I want to do all of these things. And he's, answer hit me really hard. He goes, you're 30. You're likely going to live to 80. If you look back on your life, every five years has felt like a lifetime because it is if you're doing it right. So if you consider every five years a lifetime of a new thing you can do of an entirely new something, then you have 10 lifetimes ahead of you. You just need to choose what you want to do in the next lifetime. You don't need to give up on all the goals, but you can't do all 10 at once because they're going to fail. And that's really resonated with me and has given me the confidence to say, like, this is a five-year experiment. I'm three years in. If it works out really well, if it doesn't, I've certainly learned a million things. And if after five years, my next lifetime, I choose to say I'm going to scale it massively beyond that and learn that, that's fine. If I choose to say somebody else can scale it for me or if it doesn't work at all, um, I can say maybe the five years after that, I'm living in Slab City. Maybe the five years after that, I'm living in Tibet. Maybe the five years after that, I am uh, traveling the world with a wife and kids. Each of those things is kind of giving yourself the opportunity of meeting a balancing point in between you only live once, but giving yourself, an, and I mean that in terms of you could walk out today and say, I no longer run the Boston Cage podcast. I no longer do this, uh, sell all of your things and live in a bank. People have that capacity and they forget that, but also remind yourself that everything truly worthwhile takes time. So to commit enough time to do it right and to know that ahead of time, I think it's still um, Chinese phrase of like, before you start, you must know the rules of the game, like to quit when you win. Um, defining that ahead makes things a lot easier. So that was my very roundabout. I have not written a book yet. I mean, I, I think it's a hell of an answer because I mean, what it leads me to is thinking about, okay, 
if you are talking to someone, right, and if you are going to give them words of advice or last words of wisdom and looking at that five-year span, right, and the five years being a lifetime, and let's say an entrepreneur is coming to you and they're listening to you right now and they're saying, like, I-, I love your vibe. I love, like, your tenacity. I love, like, the way you're inspiring me. What words of, in- words of insight would you give to that person so that way they can kind of utilize that within the next five years? I've always found that one hard. And another mentor told me of, I can never give answers to that easily because I need to know who that person is. They like to say like, some people need to take a break. They're working too hard. Some people need to get off their butt and do some work. Some people need to have a little bit more drive. So realistically, the only answers that I can give that are generic are to meditate, to let go of the story, to spend some time away from wherever you're headed because if you're feeling anxious if you're feeling overwhelmed if you're doing something that's providing negative the answers in your thoughts or in your environment so explore something completely outside of that if you're entirely focused on business go read a book by Brene brown on vulnerability mm-hmm. get in touch with that side of peace if you're somebody who's really kind of good but you're afraid and not sure what to do in your life probably go explore, go take some courses on Udemy. But at any given moment, the first thing I do is give somebody a hug. I give somebody a hug for 30 seconds and just let them relax and remind themselves, you're fine, perfect as you are. It's a hard world. I even, I love behavioral economics and Daniel Kahneman uh, hit me really hard where he talked about how they came up with behavioral economics was classical economics around rationality was like, this is a rational way to do things and people are just acting irrationally. And he said, we don't believe that people are acting irrationally. We just believe the world is hard. And I frame that really well in perspective of it's difficult. We are not built for this. 200 years ago, 90% of people worked on a farm. And now you're supposed to navigate 400 different possible professions 150 of which will be obsolete by the time you get to 10 years from now and piece that all together with all the changes, all of the perspectives, give yourself a break, ask yourself what you want to feel, figure out the best way to do that, but keep your guiding style or to be, how do I provide an impact to others and how do I do so in a way that meets my values? Because if you always follow that path, you're going to be happy no matter what you do. Yeah, I'm just recapping what you said in my mind. It's definitely an inspirational statement to make. So someone's listening and they want to get in contact with you. Like, how how, how do they reach out to you? I mean, obviously, we, we haven't even, like, dove into really deep to what your platform does. But I think that you are such an interesting individual and you give such great advice and such good insight. Someone that may want to reach out to you just to communicate with you. How would they do that? You can feel free to read email me at david at impodio.io, that's E-M-P-O-D-I-O, or add me on LinkedIn at David Longini. Um, yeah, feel free to reach out, ask questions. I'd love to just work through these things. And I'm sure if people ask enough questions, I'll write an article and eventually a book about it. Fair enough. So I got a couple of bonus questions for you. One is, why did you come up with the name Empodio? Like, what does that really mean for you? And what does that really mean for your customer? 
first and foremost, um, to embrace incompetence. We are not branding experts. All of our partners mispronounce it, and that's fine. And I should have learned that ahead of time. And I'm glad I work in B2B, because if I was in business to consumer, we probably should have changed already. Uh, but we came up with that name in the same vein of you have to put our, yourself where we were in terms of like, we're going to solve all the problems, be better, be innovative in every possible way. And we love stoicism. We were looking for something in line with stoicism, but all of the names were really taken. Um, so empodio means obstacle in Greek. As per Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacle is the Way, which was our idea of we are always going to be moving forward to try to break down obstacles. And really our original tagline, which wasn't great, was uh, breaking down obstacles to business success. Which didn't tell anybody what we did or how we did it. Um, but that was the core framework of how we ended up with it. Very cool. I mean, to every brand is always a story. So, I mean, I knew there had to have been something behind it. Because, again, to your point, it does not define what you do. But now that you're talking about the definition of the word, it, it kind of defines it if you do enough of the etymology behind the word. So I definitely appreciate that. So another bonus question for you, right? If you could spend 24 hours with anyone, dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? That is tough, because I'd have some tough choices. If I had to choose, I'm going to do two, one dead, one alive. Right. Um, if I had 24 hours with somebody who's dead, I would have to go back and meet Buddha. Just because in the same way I look at Christianity and all of the things that spiraled out from that, there are so many different sex scenes stories that have spun out from one potentially person. And I'd really just want to spend some time at the source and see what things were like, whether everything's perfectly accurate or whether everything's entirely spiraled out. And then if alive, I'd have to really almost have lunch with two people, Tim Ferriss and Brene Brown, because those two people are the ones who have had the highest impact on my life. Of Tim has not only his own thoughts helped me, but his podcast introduced me to hundreds of thinkers that have influenced the way that I think and connected me and structured that. And Brene Brown, I still remember driving out to Boulder, Colorado and listening to her, The Power of Vulnerability, and just crying and being like, oh God. And that was the starting of an awakening that has made me love life a lot more. Wow. Wow. Definitely powerful. So, I mean, with that and, and going into closing out um, this particular episode, I, I would like to make you the host of Boston Cage Podcast, and you're going to have opportunity to interview me. What questions have came up since we've been talking that you would like to ask me? What brings you joy? There's multiple different things bring me joy. Uh, if, we're, if we're talking about like on the business spectrum, I would say podcasting, having an opportunity to interview individuals like you. Because again, this is the first time you and I have met. And of course, I've done my due diligence, but we, we haven't really met until we've had this conversation. So knowing the kind of person you are and hearing like your ideologies and your philosophies, it was something that I wasn't expecting. And I knew that you went into a Buddhist environment, but I didn't expect you to be the way you are. So it was definitely, it was a refreshing 
twist that, again, if I didn't wake up and if I wasn't doing this, I wouldn't have had this opportunity to experience that. On the other side, I would definitely think um, like family and just traveling, just having opportunity to, to see our kids grow and to see what they're becoming and from where they came from, but also at the same time, giving them the opportunity to see us travel or to travel with them as well. I like that. Hmm. And do you have any other questions? Say it again. I do. Yeah. Um, from the background, sure. what is your favorite Star Wars movie? Because in honor of you, I have never seen one and I will watch it. Wow. Favorite Star Wars movie. It's, it's it's so i mean i i don't i don't think that there, there's one movie per se i think star wars is like this like odyssey it's not you can kind of jump in wherever you want and the way it's so staged that you could jump in in the middle which was the original movies right and then you can kind of go backwards and you can go forwards but i think one of my favorite ones was like the um phantom menace the first one the one when you kind of realize that Anakin, what Anakin was really a good kid that turned into Dark Vader. It was just kind of like, and oh. it may not be the universal top pick for any Star Wars fan, but for me, it was kind of like, you know, we watched Star Wars and we knew about Dark Vader for so many decades and we had an opportunity to see him as a kid. What was his upbringing? That's one of the questions that I asked on this show was like, what kind of kid were you? Because that kid is sitting in someone's house right now. You are the representation of an older version of someone's kid that's listening to this podcast right now. And that's why I asked that question. So to see Anakin and then to see what he became, is just, it's, it's, it's interesting. And for me, it just kind of gives me more motivation to keep doing what I'm doing to kind of build this legacy. Love it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, like, like I said, I think that this was definitely a, a, a hell of an insightful episode. I definitely appreciate you taking time, time out your busy schedule to be here today. Uh, again, I, I, I welcome for you to continue this conversation offline. I, I definitely want to see like what else are you doing with your business and kind of see like you, like you said before, you have the shiny syndrome a little bit. So I, I think but you haven't mentioned it, but I think there's probably something else boiling that you may want to develop or create down the road as well. Always fair. <laughs> Great. Well, it was a pleasure having you, man. Thank you. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss Uncaged are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.